is the USCCB First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Matthew Weldon, Religious Liberty Program Specialist here at the USCCB. And today I'm joined by my friends and colleagues, Jade Henricks and Melissa Silver Swearingen. Jade is Executive Director and Melissa is Associate Director of Government Relations at the USCCB. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks, Aaron. Nice it's to great see you. to be with you. <laughs> now, uh, both of you are more or less lobbyists. <laughs> Why are you laughing? I'm sorry. <laughs> Nobody takes us seriously. <laughs> this is why we're failing. I, I apologize. I apologize. I Yeah, you're more or less lobbyist. Would you you accept that label? Um, I like the more. You're more. I'm Jade less. is the lesser lobbyist. Yes, that's right. Uh, but you know what you do? Like your lobbying is not like. Other, what other lobbyists do, at least I don't think it. I don't think of it as the, what others do. Um, could you give us a sense of you know what your work is like and um, how does it compare? How does it differ from like what your counterparts in, in like a big lobbying firm? How does it differ from that? That's a good question. Uh, the mandate of the office is to advocate on behalf of the bishops uh, with the federal government. So we have state Catholic conferences that do the same thing at the state level. Uh, so my office, our office, um, we don't, we're not responsible for formulating any of the policy. That's done through our committee structures, and that's done through the bishops themselves, of course. But we are responsible for putting together kind of the strategic objectives uh, and, and how best to accomplish the objectives. So what we do is simply take the policy, go to Capitol Hill, certainly build relationships. I think uh, any lobbying firm is, if it's effective. Uh, is based in large part on relationships. So we spend a lot of time uh, fostering relationships with the staff and members of Congress, and of course also with working with the administration. In this case, we're working with the new Trump administration. Uh, and you know, finding areas where we can be um, collaborating with an office on an area where we might agree, and then in other areas challenging members, staff, uh, to maybe rethink or reconsider their own priorities uh, in, in other areas. You know, it's, a, it's a dynamic environment, of course, that uh, demands kind of kind of ongoing adjustments to uh, our approaches. Uh, but for the most part, you know, it's directed, it, it's, it's directed often by um, just kind of uh, in a responsive way to what's going on in Capitol Hill with the administration. One thing that's different about um, <clears throat> my lobbying in particular than perhaps a normal firm is my lobbying is primarily about death and trying to get people not to, to kill people. So don't kill the unborn, don't kill the old, don't kill the elderly, have a conscience. And I don't think if you're an energy lobbyist or a transportation lobbyist, you really get to go in and talk about death every day. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and you mentioned like uh, the shifting dynamics, like how things, um, you know, some people you, you're working with to maybe try to change their minds. Uh, others you're trying to like collaborate with or build uh, build relationships with, uh, but then you know one of the things that I have wondered about is because the the bishops address such a range of issues and and that doesn't really fit in with the political um, you know kind of like the the um, uh, the the kind of like with the polarization and the different view um, sides that it's not like left or right or whatever so. Uh, one of the things I have I've wondered with with y'all is, you know, how does that work when you if you're trying to maintain relationships with all of these people? Does it ever, like, how what is the dynamic like if you're like 
working with somebody that, with a congressperson who, that we're kind of, they're with us on some things, but they're really against us on some other things, and like, does it ever, do they express frustration <laughs> with you, or, or do you ever see that you've been able to change people's minds? I mean, how does, like, you know, what is that like? Because that seems to be another way we're different from other more like special yeah. interest firms, so we have a range of issues. Yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, we handle certain issues that um, are predominantly Democratic issues and some issues that are predominantly Republican um, issues. And it is definitely, um, it can be awkward if you're going into a Democratic office to talk to them about something they're more likely to agree with you on, and they also know that you represent life or, or conscience or something they may not agree. Sometimes they'll bring that up. I've certainly been in some um, awkward conversations where I was in to talk about human rights in another country and, and people that were uh, suffering because of pollution in the water, and the staffer randomly brought up his very first question was, so, the Catholic Church, condoms. Tell me about condoms. And I was like, wow, what does that have to do with water? Like, we want to talk about water. His second question was only slightly less awkward, was, does the church, oh, and he kind of scratches his head, and goes, does the church have a position yet on birth control? I was like, yeah, where have you yet. been for <laughs> 2,000 years? Yes, yes, as a matter of fact, we do. Um, and it was just kind of, I mean, I answered his questions, hopefully we're doing some evangelization while we're in there on, on these other stuff. Um, but it was definitely awkward. My other colleagues um, don't handle those issues, so they were kind of like, whoa, Melissa, this is all you, <laughs> yeah. sex and death, remember, that's you. Um, so it can be a little awkward, but I think it's also good because we can um, not be boxed in so much and said that we're you know, a conservative organization or we're a liberal organization. We try to just do what's right, and um, obviously the bishops are defining that as they understand uh, our, our political involvement, and we try to implement that. And it, so it gives us some advantages sometimes that we can... Um, uh, yeah, not be boxed in so easily and push both sides a little bit to consider something maybe we have an in on one issue they do want to talk about and we can push them gently on something else while we're in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, it may be awkward at times, but more often than not, I would characterize it probably as just uh, there are opportunities that otherwise wouldn't exist. A senator told me a few weeks ago that the Bishop's Conference are probably better is better positioned than anybody else in town to help bridge the gap between the left and right these days because the voice of the bishops um, as you indicated it kind of transcends any sort of partisan divide mm-hmm. there is a credibility that the voice of the bishops has that very few people in this town uh, do have and so I think we can approach any office you know whether it's an office that's very left or very right there's something that we're going to agree with them on Mm-hmm. And there's also going to be something that we can challenge them on. Mm-hmm. And so there isn't a single office on Capitol Hill that we can't find some common ground on. And I would say there's very few of any other organizations in town that can have that sort of relationship with every member of Congress. Now, of course, what those issues are, some are more fundamental than others, uh, and that does sometimes create tensions in terms of the priorities of that member of Congress or the administration. Uh, but I like to see it as an opportunity to um, start conversations that might otherwise not start at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we are uniquely positioned. And, it's, and, and for us, that makes our job interesting. And then at times, those conversations actually can be, uh, not on a regular basis, but sometimes become very personal, where you're talking to folks and they start asking questions about the faith, or they're telling you something about their private life, and they just think because we're, we're, we're associated with the Catholic Church, we're going to have a certain interest or sympathy for, for whatever they, that is on their mind. And that sometimes can also open up conversations that are completely unrelated to the work at hand. 
Yeah, I mean, you both have kind of touched on that, that, like, because you're working for the, for the bishops, I mean, does this come up often where that people ask you, like, kind of move away from the political type stuff and just ask you just straight up about, about I mean, because you're representing the church yeah. and not just in, as, a, as a lobbyist, but as a, you know, as, as a person of faith yourself. So Yeah, well, Jade has to answer this question, yes, because when I was a congressional staffer, Jade was my uh, contact on some pro-life issues, and so I used to bug him all the time. I was not Catholic at the time, and I would ask him, like, why is the church doing this? Why is the church doing that? And mostly it started with politics, I think. It was a lot of political right, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Why is CAJ doing this? Or why is this Catholic member of Congress saying this or doing that? It doesn't make sense to me, blah, blah, blah. And then pretty soon it was like, why is the church organized like this? Why do you believe in these sacraments? What are these sacraments? Give me some books to read. Those are easier questions to answer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and eventually I became Catholic, thanks to Jade, so... Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks to the Holy Spirit. <laughs> okay, uh, that too. <laughs> but yeah, it's extraordinary. If you're open to the Holy Spirit, uh, policy questions can lead into personal questions. And uh, you never know where it goes. But yeah, I, Melissa, obviously now she's my colleague, uh, but you know, having that kind of relationship with a, with a staffer uh, is something that I wouldn't have normally had if I was just working for some other special interest Right, group. right. And we've had other people that ask for prayers, or if we're bringing in a bishop, they'll ask for a special blessing from the bishop, or they'll mm-hmm. feel um, inclined to share a story about their confirmation, or their baptism, or a family member, or ask for prayers on something, or ask if we have prayer cards, or tell us about their favorite saint, or just all sorts of things that aren't really directly lobbying or directly about our work, but it's it's an invitation. You represent the entire Catholic Church when you're there, which is a pretty awesome responsibility, but also it opens some pretty nice conversations. Yeah, and, and also it also opens us up sometimes to kind of uh, maybe a more acute criticism because a member of Congress will feel a certain responsibility or tension or be challenged in a way that they won't otherwise. I mean, I can think, just in the last few weeks, uh, for examples, where a member of Congress has taken our uh, opposition to his position, you know, more personally because it's coming uh, from the bishops, mm-hmm. and then he gets more defensive or or he's more argumentative, and, it, and I, it's interesting because you see that it's coming from a place of his soul rather than just simply a place of politics. Right, right. Or they'll take it as an opportunity to share with us all the things they think the church is doing wrong, yes. whether they're on the right or yeah. the left. Yeah. They'll yeah. tell us everything that we're supposed to somehow really I guess to the Holy Father yeah. or someone. Yeah, we get that all the time. You know, why, is the, why doesn't the church do this? Or why doesn't the church do that? And you all need to tell the Pope to do this. Well, we're like, back to the bill. Can we please sponsor this? Not only that, you know, it also betrays a certain kind of misunderstanding of the nature of our work. I mean, we serve the bishops, and if they have an issue with kind of the teaching of the church. I'm, we're happy to engage them on that conversation, but this is the deposit of faith that we're not coming up with on our own. Right, right. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we're happy to discuss what the catechism says, but we don't have influence in terms of lobbying the Pope on something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> good. My Italian's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> or Spanish. True. Well, uh, you know, I mean, mention it, bringing up all of that, um, you know, all the different kind of ways, like... Um, the kinds of conversations that come up and all the different things that you do that are unique, you know, as Catholic lobbyists, uh, you know, one of the things it has, it brings up, it, things it raises to me, for me at least, is just that, uh, you, you know, I think sometimes people can get very cynical about how much influence we really could, can have as the, it, working for the bishops because, you know, we don't have the money or the resources that some of um, our counterparts may have or, uh, you know, we're not like donating to campaigns, and uh, so there, 
people can kind of wonder, like, is this even really something we should be doing? But I think, you know, y'all are raising up, I have often thought that it's very important that if if we're not there, then nobody's going to, if nobody's there, like, standing up for truth, uh, who who else is going to do it? I mean, somebody has to do it. But one of the things I wonder is, like, you know, have you seen, like, been surprised where your efforts have paid off on, even on, not just on kind of, like, you know, bringing somebody into the church, and that's obviously <laughs> pretty great, but even on policy kind of stuff, have you seen people's... Oh, you mean our actual work? Have we been yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> I mean, have you seen, like, you know, somebody's, yeah. somebody, you know, were you able to change somebody's mind, or, uh, or have you seen, uh, you know, coalitions be built that would, we wouldn't, you know, that might not have come about if you didn't have... Not just, obviously not just you, but people of faith here in Washington who work together on these things. Like, Yeah, uh, I admit that we, I have not been as successful as I would like. Uh, there are a lot of things that are still left undone. But that being said, if the voice of the bishops, or the voice of the church, or the voice of the faithful people did not have a presence on Capitol Hill, things would be much worse. Uh, you know, as an obvious example, which Melissa works on on the pro-life issues, you know, you know, sometimes I'm, I I want to be careful that it's not so much a faith-based issue. I mean, pro-life is, is a natural human rights issue. Mm-hmm. So so we we um, uh, you know, don't lean exclusively on, on the voice of the church, but the, because the bishops have this moral credibility um, and they're outside of the partisan politics and they're not donating to Democrats, they're not donating to Republicans. I think you know we can bring. S- the conversation to a place that it might not otherwise be. For example, uh, and, and there are countless examples out there, but I just think of one significant one that was bipartisan is the President Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR. This is now, it's about $7 billion a year that goes towards um, relief, mostly in Africa, but uh, other countries dealing with uh, tuberculosis, uh, AIDS, um, malaria, malaria and all deadly, deadly diseases. Uh, the way the bill was originally drafted, the faith community could have easily been marginalized. But as we know, through Catholic Relief Services, through a whole host of, of faith-based uh, organizations out there, that it's oftentimes the faith-based communities that are closest uh, to the people who are most in need. Mm-hmm. Especially if you go to the more rural areas. Uh, the government programs tend to be focused in cities, high population density. But if you go out to the more rural areas, it's really up to the, the churches, the local communities to be serving these people. And so our voice at the table in, in drafting that, we weren't so much interested in terms of some of the more technical pieces of the bill, but we wanted to make sure that there was space for the faith-based community and the faith-based community would be protected in their ability to participate in these programs. And I can confidently say that without the voice of the bishops and some of our partners in the faith-based community, the legislation would have been drafted very differently, mm-hmm. and billions of dollars would have been gone to pretty much exclusively secular organizations that, of course, have a very different understanding of the human person. Mm-hmm. And so the integrity of, 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 of the whole person, uh, body, mind, spirit, uh, would have been lost in some of these services. And uh, that would have been an impoverishment of the valuable um, care that's now being given. You know, I'm sure Melissa has a dozen other examples <laughs> of where we can go, but that's kind of one major piece that has bipartisan support. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, something I, concrete. So, some, something yeah. concrete, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> I would just add that um, 
I think all of our issues are not ones that you have to be religious to hold our beliefs on them. Mm -hmm. We arrive at them through faith because we're Catholic, but you certainly can get to pro-life, you can get to conscience protection, you can get to education, you can get to human rights, you can get to refugee resettlement rights and issues. All of these issues can be gotten to in other places, but I think faith-based organizations, including the Catholic Bishops Organization, we bring a particular passion because of our faith, a certain amount of commitment that isn't necessarily, it can be, but not necessarily shared by secular organizations, um, and often a, a deep-seated, this is the right thing to do, this is a morally necessary thing mm-hmm. to do, we must save the PEPFAR bill so that it can do the most good it can do in Africa and these other countries for the sake of the people on the ground. It's not just a matter of, oh, we want our organizations funded. Right, we want right. people on the ground to get the best treatment, and that's only going to happen if the Catholic community is part of it because they've got the network on the ground. And we know that, and other people know that, and that's why we're able to be effective is because we can make persuasive arguments based on reality and truth, and I think we have enough credibility that people on both sides will at least listen to us. They don't always agree with us. Um, we've had numerous conversations on issues where we were hoping to persuade someone but people can get too partisan, they can get too committed to their ideologies, and they're not always persuadable, but at least, almost always, we can at least get a hearing on even some of the most controversial issues, and mm-hmm. since I handle abortion, I get often the most controversial issues, although Jay does LGBT stuff, and that's obviously become quite controversial mm-hmm. as well, but we can at least get those meetings and make a case and maybe soften someone's position, maybe challenge them on something, maybe move a staffer a little bit farther in our direction, at least mm-hmm. buy a little bit more space on the issue. Yeah, and I hear, even from many of my friends, why is the church partnering with the government? And, and isn't the church being corrupted by this sort of partnership? Mm-hmm. And I would make the case the other way, is that without the church being involved, these programs would necessarily look very different. Now, yes, the church has to be on guard, not to just simply um, submit itself to whatever mandates the government puts out, as we've seen with the HHS mandate with preventive services and, and elsewhere. But if the church were not to partner with the government, one, tax dollars would be used much less effectively. Uh, but, but also, I mean, th- there's, there's a natural, society is different segments. You, you have the public sector, you have the private sector, you have the faith-based. And in a healthy community, those things should be interacting at some level. Uh, now, you have to be careful, and, and of course, you have to protect the integrity of, of the faith, but that partnership is very powerful, and it literally mm-hmm. saves millions of lives. I mean, the obvious examples are some of the stuff overseas, but domestically as well, whether it you know be our Catholic charities, um, whether it be our hospitals, whatever it might be, that partnership is saving millions of lives, and if done well... It's done, do, being done without corrupting the church. Mm-hmm. Now, that's getting harder and harder to do, and that's part of our job is to keep the space so that the faith community can, can partner without being corrupted. But that partnership is literally saving millions of lives. And I'm proud of that work, yeah, yeah. even if there are folks out there who say that there needs to be a complete separation. I mean, one of the things that we do, I've always had the sense, is that uh, we just have networks and institutions all over the world that, that you know, the government wouldn't be able to... if, if if the government wasn't working with us, that it wouldn't be able to, to do some of these things. I mean, we, we are able to do things more effectively in part because of 
are the networks, the institutions, the relationships. And, and I think we do some things better, even if the government can eventually replace us as they want to. So, I mean, even healthcare in our country, starting way back in the Middle Ages, that's mostly a Catholic idea, is that somebody's yeah, going to yeah. provide a hospital such a situation and care for people, whether they can afford it or not. We're, we're going to set up this institution and do that, because that's basically a Catholic idea. Mm-hmm. Now, looking around the country, there's still a ton of Catholic hospitals. I don't remember the exact number. You're always good at the one in six beds. One in six Catholic. beds is in the co- is in the Catholic hospital, but still, there's, so there's a lot that aren't Catholic. Um, the government has obviously has helps now with healthcare and hospitals and all that jazz. But I still think there's something unique that uh, faith-based organizations offer, even if a government can quote unquote replicate the scenario. It's still not addressing the whole person or right, the spiritual right. person or mm-hmm. at the same level of intimacy within the community that a church can or a faith-based organization can. Mm-hmm. Now, so how did y'all get into doing this kind of stuff? I mean. Were you uh, undergraduates at, I'm not sure where you at, Wheaton or Steubenville or uh, wherever you went in pol- studying political science and thinking, no. I want to work for the, <laughs> the church? Like, how, like how, did this, how did this come about? That, or did you, I mean, like me, just kind of stumbled into doing yeah, this that? sort of stuff? So. <laughs> uh, I'll start, I guess. Um, mine is way too long for this podcast, so the really short version is I studied um, a collection of things as an undergrad at Biola University out in California, which I give mad props to, especially their great uh-huh. books program, which was jolly fun. And good philosophy there. Right? Good philosophy, yeah. mm-hmm. good uh, history, all sorts of good stuff. Um, so it was really fun. Thought about the great ideas from you know Aristotle to the Church Fathers, all that stuff, and ended up with a special interest in political philosophy. Did a lot of stuff on uh, the Church's influence on law and morality and these sorts of questions. And some people um, that I was close with out in California suggested, oh, maybe you should pop over to D.C. and see about getting a job there for a while. I was like, that is the stupidest idea I have ever heard. (laughs) Thanks for playing. No, thank you. I'm going to stay right here in California doing my great books thing, get my Ph.D., teach, all that jazz. But uh, needless to say, that is not the path that God took Mm -hmm. me on. I did end up moving out to D.C. shortly after I graduated, um, and I worked on the Hill for a number of years. And then thought I was very done with politics. I was ready to be very done with politics. Uh, Went and got my master's at CUA, became a Catholic, and... um, Jade called me out of the blue. It's all your fault. <laughs> I was like, I think you should come over here. You should. I'm going to recruit you. And I was like, you're a jerk. <laughs> Not only did you get Sorry. me in this crazy church, but now you want to come work for this crazy church. But no, it's been a it's been a blessing to be here, and I've learned a lot. It's um, and you, you've done more than simply the government relations work for a while. You were the spokesperson for the president of the conference. You went over to Rome a couple times. Yeah, you've done some interesting things. Of the beast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get to see a little of everything. I mean, um, do you still sometimes think you would want to get back into into teaching because you could, especially maybe. here, you could probably teach it like you know teach a class at at a you know like a like a Georgetown, the Berkeley Center, or something like that. If you're yeah, yeah, maybe. Interested in that sort of thing. Maybe. Um, I don't think I'll do politics forever. I know some people are blessed with that gift. I think of uh, Congressman Chris Smith, who I used to work for, who's been in politics literally longer than I've been alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and God bless him. I mean, that takes a huge amount of uh, courage and persistence and just determination to stick with uh, the battle that long. It's a, it's a hard battle. It's very grueling. So for me, I don't think I will be able to stick with it forever. I think it'll eventually wear me down, and I'll pass that torch on to someone else, a little mm-hmm. fresh blood and ready to fight the fights again. But for now, it's a good place, and uh, certainly I can read books on the, on the side. Mm-hmm. What about you? You, I mean, you were, have mm-hmm. came, took a circuitous route yourself. Yes, yes you? my life has been full of many curves. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that's God's providence, just kind of leading you along the way. Uh, I, I hope I was open to God's... Um, 
mysterious plan in my life. I'm from California, like Melissa as well, Northern California. Went to my undergraduate at Francisco University of Steubenville, which that's a whole other story, but I stumbled into it, but it changed my life. Uh, found my faith there. And then, uh, probably about a lot of guys at age, whatever, 22 years old, I didn't know what to do, so I followed my girlfriend at the time out to Washington, D.C., and um, that was and, and got my first job on Capitol Hill, worked for a congressman for a couple of years, uh, and then entered the seminary. Uh, the relationship ended. And then, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I went into the seminary. I was in the seminary for five years. Um, I was about three months away from ordination to the diaconate. And uh, left the seminary and uh, didn't know what I was going to do. And I came back here just because this is the last place I had been before the seminary. And I stumbled into another job and got an STL in systematic theology. And worked uh, this other nonprofit for a couple of years. And then with another former member of Congress. And then came here to the conference. And I've been here for now 10 years. And uh, it's been a very interesting 10 years to be in the church, yeah, working yeah. for the church. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as you tell your stories, it's, it's um, you know, it's obvious, I think it's been obvious throughout this uh, conversation that that um, your faith is really the main, like, has been the driving force behind a lot of this, uh, behind kind of what you're doing right now. And, you know, I mean, I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about kind of how you, how you maintain that doing the kind of work you you're doing because I think you know I mean I think that like sometimes I've, I'm sure you've known people like this too who get into this kind of work with for good reasons but but can I mean the politics the, the, the battles and everything can really like take over people you can get people get bitter uh, that sort of thing mm-hmm. I don't I don't think that that's the case with y'all, at least, you know, as far as I can tell. So, um, maybe you're just hiding um, it. <laughs> so, but, uh, you know, how do you, like, how do you stay balanced or how do you, how do you continue to keep um, Christ at the center of your life? Oh, that's a good question. For, before I answer that question, uh, I think there's a related question in terms of the nature of our work. Mm-hmm. I, I, there's, there's some folks, I think, who have the idea that our work is kind of just a, a technical expertise. Mm-hmm. And the church happens to be your client, and you can you can do the work. And, and I just I have a very different approach and philosophy for the work and for my for the office. That's one of the reasons why I wanted Melissa to work to work um, in the office uh, because she's able to integrate her faith with work. And and I think it'd be very difficult for us to do the work that we've been tasked to do without having an ability to think kind of instinctively with the mind of the church, as I hope we do. And have our work, you know, the source and summit coming from the sacraments, coming from our relationship with Christ, because there are so many frustrations, because, um, you know, on a natural level, it can easily lead you into a sort of frustration and maybe even despair at times uh, because of where the secular society is going and, and even struggles within the church. I mean, the, the, one of the unseen things about the nature of our work is... is uh, Yes, we deal with politics on Capitol Hill, but believe it or not, there's a lot of politics in the church. No, <laughs> I had no idea. Yeah. And uh, and in, in fact, in many respects, I find that to be the more challenging part of the work, um, just because you have folks with different ecclesiologies, you have folks with different priorities, different understanding of the nature of the faith and whatnot, 
Now, I think we do a pretty good job of just serving the bishops. We, 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 we try not to um, impose our own um, kind of thinking and, 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 and um, priorities. I, th I think we serve the bishops faithfully. But in order to do that, I do think there needs to be kind of a, a Christocentric character to our work. And it's, obviously, it's, it's not obvious on the day-to-day -day basis. But if we're not praying, I know at least for me, if I'm not praying on a regular basis, if I don't have the support at home with my wife and kids in terms of their own faith life, uh, and then also looking to the saints, and, and some bishops, I mean, you know, there, there are, what, 300 or so bishops, uh, and obviously we can't get to know them all, but we know a few of them well, and uh, the ones that I'm close with are real inspirations. They're men of faith mm -hmm. before they are policy folks or anything else. Uh, and so working in that environment and having colleagues like Melissa, you, Aaron, and other folks who um, take their faith seriously, understand that this is something more than just a nine-to-five uh, technical responsibility, mm -hmm. but it's something that is serving a community that, that, that is beyond simply the building of the USCCB is uh, something that, I don't know, it, it can't be... Um, it can't be underestimated in terms of that character of, of the nature of the work. But there are other people who approach it differently. But for me, there's no way that the spiritual dimension cannot be a kind of an essential part of the, of the work. Yeah, I think of, um, <clears throat> I can't remember who said it, but that we're called to be faithful, not to be successful. And it's a good thing, because... <laughs> we're not Mother necessarily Teresa. Mother yeah. Teresa? I think so. Uh, whoever it is, I, I love it. I should probably look it up someday so I actually can give that person credit. But um, it's just it's very encouraging that we just do what we do and try to do it to the best of our ability and so far as we seem, we think that we're called by God to do it. Um, but it's not always measured in earthly success, which mm -hmm. is, is good. And so you can kind of just keep doing it because it's important, because it's saving lives, because it's a testimony, because it's evangelizing slowly through your words and actions um, on the hill and, and elsewhere. Um yeah, I guess it's just kind of keep at it, try to keep focused on why you do what you do. I already mentioned that I was reluctantly dragged into politics, but I don't think I could really muster up much energy or desire to work on something else that I didn't really feel mattered. And mm -hmm. human rights matter. Saving lives matters. Right, Conscience right. rights matter. Um, so that, that kind of keeps your morale up a little bit, too. <coughs> These things matter, and the men we work for are, are for the most part, I mean, insofar as I know them, um, holy men, mm -hmm. and, and it's, a, it's a pleasure to work for them. And, I mean, I think it's important, too, with, with what y'all are saying, that um, you don't want the church to just be a, a special interest group. I mean, that's, I think that's, I mean, if, if you just approach the, the, the job as if, like, well, we have this policy goal, and my job is just simply to, like, make sure that we get it, like, then in that way, you kind of end up reducing, uh, reducing the church, and that's not really what the what the what our mission, at least as I understand it, it's not what what it's supposed to be. So, uh, so it seems. I mean, it does seem like it's it's important. And as you say, I think you could easily get discouraged because uh, you know so many of our offices. I think here at the bishops' conference, I think feel like they're. It's kind of like what unites us all is that so many of us feel like we're all losing. <laughs> it's like, even though we, 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 that's kind of like, I I've often laugh about that. Is that like, well, you know, we have. You, you can know. erase this from the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're not losers. <laughs> no, just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs>
But uh, we're you not know, tired of winning here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> we're doing so much winning. Um, but anyway, yeah. I mean, I think that if you did just think, um, you know, I have the the goal. Like we want to get this legislation passed, and then whatever it takes. And then if you failed, um, you know, repeatedly, I think if if you weren't motivated by your faith, it's it seems to me hard. It's hard for me to see why you would continue to do it if it were just. If it yeah. were just your nine to five or whatever, so well, yeah, and it speaks to the character of the bishops too, in that the bishops are not politicians; uh, they're not a special interest group. They are first and foremost pastors, mm-hmm. and so just e- even in defeat, witnessing to the truth is a goal, is an end, mm-hmm. and you'd like to have victories, but but if we don't have the victories, the witness itself, I think, speaks to the. To the purpose, the value of the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just heard Daniel Philpot, who's with Under Caesar Sword, who looks at like persecution of Christians um, all over the world, and he was talking about you know the different strategies that Christians use, and he just mentioned that it came up in the lecture this idea of like you know which strategies are successful. Well, it depends on what you even say success is, and so it may be sometimes that simply um, making the right kind of being the a witness to truth in in and of itself does constitute a success, even though sometimes it may not feel in the moment like it's the quite the success you wanted. It didn't mean that mm-hmm. that you failed if if you were at least heard if the if the truth was heard. So I think that is important. Uh, I want to go back though. You mentioned uh, saints. Uh, are there any particular saints that on whose intercession? Y'all rely, you know, when, the, when I talk to uh, the, the our lawyer friends, it's I always have to say, you know, you can't be St. Thomas More, like you have to <laughs> come up with somebody else. But, um, but yeah, I mean, for you, I'm not, and I'm not sure, like, is there, are, is there a patron saint of, of lawmakers or? That's Thomas uh, More. Hmm? It's Thomas More. <laughs> Oh, oh, he is for legislators, too. Okay. But we won't say that, just because we said not to. But yeah, I mean, are there any, you know, anybody um, that you uh, rely on, any kinds of, or or if it's not a saint, maybe any particular devotions that you find helpful as you go about your work? Well, for me, every day I start with a prayer to St. Joseph, just as the work, just St. Joseph the worker. Just because I know the day is going to probably be filled with some frustrations and, and failures. Mm-hmm. That's just the way I do my work. <laughs> but but the value of doing the work itself well and with joy is, is, is a nice little prayer that I have. That, that's a good way to start the day. But then in terms of a patron saint, you know, the one uh, that I invoke quite a bit with respect to the, to the work proper is uh, St. John Paul II. Just because obviously he's a man of our age, uh, my faith was nurtured by him, but he dealt with politics in in a very real way, and he changed the twentieth century uh, because of his faith. And he also understood, you know, the very kind of challenges that I think we face on a daily basis. And he also left a legacy here in the United States among the bishops. And uh, so I feel a close connection with him, with, with our work. You know, there are councils, countless other saints, but those two in particular I kind of uh, interact with on a daily basis. Uh, I would probably say, <clears throat> this is not meant to be a cop-out, but I would say Mary, but mostly because of her um, 
her yes, her very famous yes, and I feel like every day I have to have some very positive, uh, intentional yesing in my life of, yes, I will pick up the phone, make this call, yes, I will fight this fight one more time, yes, I will answer this email, yes, I will deal with this little bit of inside politics that is really frustrating, yes, I will keep a good attitude, yes, mm-hmm. I will keep doing what I think God's calling me to do. So um, she's certainly someone that I appeal to a lot. Um, jo- Joseph also, um, we actually named our son Andrew Joseph, both saints, uh, partly because they are very behind the scenes kind of guys. They don't get a lot of credit. They're very patient and very humble. And those are sort of um, traits that I want to emulate, partly in this work that's not about us. It's not even mm-hmm. at the end of the day fully about the bishops. It's about God's work on, mm-hmm. on earth. And so just trying to remember that it's not about me. If I win the argument, win the day, it's just staying faithful and staying humble, staying patient. Yeah, and I think you're touching on something also that's important about, in general, work at the bishops' conference is often how much. Um, you you're behind the scenes on a lot of things that you know you you kind of have to be willing to you know and you've mentioned too that like some we're obviously going to contribute some of our own ideas but our job is to support the bishops not to kind of be out front but to to we're supposed to be supporting someone else I mean it really takes I do think it takes a certain kind of um, devotion to 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 saints who um, really exemplify humility or it takes a kind of humility, I think, to not want the credit, you know, if like, if, if you were the one who is behind some great thing that a bishop did, you know, I think it's natural, it, you may kind of want to be like, I want everybody to know that I was the one who actually suggested that he say that or whatever it may be. So uh, I think that is an important part of our work that, that every day, to try to remember that, that like we're, we're serving someone else, um, we're serving others in our job. So, uh, yeah, I think that's important. Uh, one last thing before we close, I mean, we've got our lobbyists in here, we need to get our, some legislative updates. <laughs> so, uh, so first, uh, Melissa, we'll start with you, uh, since as Jade has mentioned, you work, you work with the pro-life office. Uh, though you also work with international justice and peace, uh, I used too, to. Is that now, right? now I do education. Okay, okay, education. Yeah. Uh, so, um, but in terms of since this is more mostly focusing on religious liberty related things for the podcast, uh, what tell us a little bit about the Conscience Protection Act because that's kind of your that's in Not your bag right now, yeah. right? So, yeah. what you know, first maybe just explain briefly. Uh, what the what the CPA does and and, and this goes back. I mean, this is the non dis the abortion non discrimination exactly. act. I mean, this is something we've been ab- about for a long time. Yeah. Say so what it is and kind of if if you don't mind saying kind of how things are going with it or how hopeful you are or. Maybe. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were speaking about patience yes, and yes. humility. Um, yes, yeah, so the bishops have been pushing for greater conscience protection for healthcare uh, providers, whether that's hospitals, doctors, nurses, uh, students, everybody and anybody that's engaged in the healthcare uh, ministry, that they do not have to be forced to cooperate with abortion. They don't have to provide them at their facility. They don't have to hold the pan to collect baby pieces. They don't have to be trained in abortion, nothing. And you'd be surprised that that's not already current law. Mm-hmm. In, in some ways, it's not. Uh, we have been successful over the years, and this is before my time, I think mostly before Jade's time, but um, a number of, of pieces of conscience laws have been passed over the years, some immediately after Roe v. Wade, and, and I won't go through the whole history because it's really long, 
But um, we've been pushing for this particular piece of legislation since the what, early 2000s. Okay. We got a bit of it in 2004 uh, on a, a rider, an appropriations rider. Um, that's been legally challenged in California and some other places. And it just doesn't seem like that's enough to protect everybody now. So we're working on the Conscience Protection Act, formerly known as ANDA, to um, guarantee those protections. And, and partly what that does is giving people the right to go to court if their um, rights are violated. So they do have these rights already, but if they're violated currently, they can appeal to HHS. And HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, has at times uh, been the actual perpetrator of the violation of yeah, the rights. Yeah. So that's not really a great um, course of action. So we want them to be able to go to court. There's no guarantee they'll win in court, but mm-hmm. we don't really have a better solution at this time other than to at least give them that right to do right, that. Right, right. And to tweak some of the laws a little bit to make it um, more likely to withstand a legal challenge so they can actually have these rights. Mm-hmm. So that's what we've been working on. Um, unfortunately, we do not have the votes in the House and Senate to simply just pass the piece of legislation outright. That seems the most logical course of action, right? Pass in the House, pass in the Senate, we have a pro-life president, he'll sign it, done. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, in the Senate, as, as most of your listeners probably know, um, you can't just pass a bill with a simple majority. You have to have a filibuster-proof majority, which is... Um, you have to have at least 60 votes, and we don't have that for pro-life anything or for even for conscience rights, which is a little bit depressing, but true nonetheless. Mm-hmm. So our strategy has been to put uh, this piece of legislation on an appropriations bill, which is the bills that fund everything in the government. Mm-hmm. Um, so to put it on the one that it has the most uh, natural fit is the Health and Human Services bill. The House, we've done that for a number of years. We've had some very serious negotiations with um, a great deal of appreciation for the current speaker, Paul Ryan, and the former speaker, John Boehner, for being willing to take this piece of legislation all the way up to the White House and have very serious negotiations. Now, very disappointingly, President Obama wouldn't accept this. He wouldn't trade anything for it. He was so opposed to it, which was very disappointing. I think um, certainly some in the Catholic world were surprised that he would be so opposed to conscience rights. He'd said some things earlier in his presidency that gave us um, some indications that he might actually be favorable or at least neutral on the issue, and that turned out not to be true. Um, So now we're certainly hopeful with President Trump that we can pass it again as an appropriations writer in the House, harder in the Senate. We still don't have those 60 votes, but perhaps that we can have a negotiation of some kind that would allow, um, you know, some of the Democrats and a few other Republicans that aren't necessarily favorable to have something else in exchange Mm -hmm. for this provision and that we might yet see it um, come into law this year. That is certainly our hope. I think I'm not quite as optimistic as Jade is. He he's hoping it's gonna ha- pass this year. I'm hoping it's gonna pass this year, but uh, yeah, you're not really optimist <laughs> in the office <laughs> in this case. Are we, I, I just I think we've been working at this so long. Uh, you know, in some respects, if not this year, when because we do have a Congress that's going to be receptive to it. Um, but there are some. It's, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be heavy lift. But I, uh, we've done a good job of helping Congress and the administration prioritize this. And if they're going to get anything of significance done in pro-life this year, um, this is at the top of the list. So I'm I'm hopeful. The problem is it's at the mercy of a legislative process that is becoming more and more embroiled in dysfunction. And so that's where the concern is. Um, and it has to compete with all the other issues. So has to funding with for the border, funding for all the initiatives that are coming out of the White yeah. House, some of which we agree with and some of which we don't, yeah. but they'll all compete for that final priority at right. the end of the year. But th- but this is a big issue. As as, um, as 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 it has been described elsewhere, you know, this is in one sense kind of an existential threat to, to health care mm-hmm. because if you force hospitals or nurses and doctors to be involved in abortion, it, it'll take away a huge part of the, the, the provider side of this. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, and we're seeing that already, the chilling effect on people wanting to go to, to school to become nurses and doctors yeah. when they're afraid that they will end up in a, a situation where they'll have to participate or risk losing their job. Mm-hmm. I've talked to, a, I'm a former evangelical, so I've talked to a number of evangelical nurses and those that are in training to be nurses who, if they stay, stay the course and decide to go ahead and get those medical degrees, they say that they'd only want to work at a Catholic hospital because they feel confident they would not be forced to have to do an abortion there. Mm-hmm. But even that is not always enough of a guarantee because, well, would there be a Catholic hospital wherever they end up living and wanting yeah, to have yeah. a job? And so that's a very small comfort um, but that's bad. <laughs> we're in a, we're yeah, in a place yeah. where we do not already don't have enough doctors and nurses to fill the needs of our people throughout the country, and mm-hmm. this is having a significant dampening effect. And this speaks to, uh, we're spending a good amount of time on this, but I think it's worth fleshing out a little bit. It speaks to how the issue in our culture has changed, and the politics have changed so much just in recent years. This was an issue, don't force somebody, don't force a doctor, don't force an institution, to be involved in abortion, the killing of an innocent life. There was broad bipartisan consensus for this. As most said, in 2004, we had language put into the appropriations bill um, w- without vocal opposition to it. I mean, there was some opposition, opposition, but it was put in, and there was agreement from left and right, uh, both sides of the aisle. And now even that, I mean, we know the Hyde Amendment is under threat. We know... Uh, all of these pro-life provisions that once did draw bipartisan, bipartisan consensus uh, are now um, have become partisan issues, unfortunately, and are under threat. But we have an opportunity now, and we're hoping to take advantage of it. We know there are other challenges that we have with this administration, this Congress, but here's an area where there's a real opportunity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, uh, or It's helpful to hear you say that about from your angle, because even just as a as kind of an observer of some of these things who hasn't been involved in, in you know, lobbying on this kind of stuff, the, the abortion issue, the language around it has just changed so much and just even in, in, you know, the way it's talked about in the media or whatever that it did used to, I used to hear a lot of at least this kind of like, well, if you don't, if you're, if you're pro-life or you're not in favor of this, well, you can still do all these other things and just like we can at least respect people's consciences and that sort of thing but like there was a general sense of like you shouldn't people shouldn't be forced to do this and uh, it wasn't this sort of like it seems like it's kind of had this it's uh, like now it's it's kind of like it has to be seen as a positive good not just something that not just the safe legal and rare language that we used to hear but uh, we can't see it. We can't even imply that it, there's something wrong about it at all. So, I mean, it really has, so that's many of these things politics. have changed so much. So. I don't know if that's true necessarily um, amongst people wherever they live. I think that's definitely true in politics because they become far more extreme than the average person. Yeah, The yeah. average person doesn't want to see an abortion of an eight-and-a-half-month-old baby. I think that's mm. crazy. Yet that's totally legal in our country, and most of the people in Congress... <clears throat> that aren't pro-life will actively support all the way to the other extreme. There's very few in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been especially true. I mean, Jade and I have been talking um, several times about the Affordable Care Act and when it passed, the number of Democrats we had that would vote for pro-life protections for the Affordable Care Act, that number went from over 50 down to about 3 in the House. Mm-hmm. We had 64 Democrats vote for this two-pack amendment. Now we could probably get three. Hmm. Not good. Yes, not good. yes. <laughs> very extreme. And, and, and not, not only is this legal... But it's now framed as basic health care, mm-hmm. essential health care. And somehow you're anti-woman 
if you want to protect the life of the unborn child and provide needed care for this woman. I mean, and that's, that's the tragedy of this. You know, as those of us who work in the pro-life movement, that there, in, in, in every abortion, there are at least two victims. The child and the mother is just not provided the care that she deserves. Mm-hmm. And she feels like she's put in this position where she has to do this, mm-hmm. where there isn't enough support around her. Mm-hmm. So that's something we, we try to do, too, out of the building here is you know, not just be anti-abortion, but be pro-life and pro-woman and provide the services that will lead to good decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I know from having worked with our Project Rachel ministry, having done a little bit with that, that, I mean, the stories you will hear through that of, of um, you know, where women and, and even men sometimes who, who regret what, they, what they've done and... and the circumstances that will sometimes surround surround it. I mean, it's really, yeah, like you say, it's for the for the average person, it's not like uh, something that should be talked about, like as this positive. This is something that everybody really loves. I mean, um, that the the way that it gets talked about in politics is just so seems kind of like disconnected from from the way things from the reality of it. Uh, well, you, Jade, can you say a little bit also just about, uh, since you deal with the, a lot of the religious liberty uh, legislation, and, you know, has there been anything that's been introduced or even just, you know, that we've discussed that may be on the horizon that we're uh, hoping for? Sure. Any, are you optimistic or about yeah, anything? Yeah, well, one of the things, uh, I mean, n- not to, not to uh, characterize the Trump administration favorably or negatively. Uh, everybody has strong opinions about that. But one of the things we were hopeful for, for quick action from the administration, uh, was relief on a number of areas in religious liberty. That's something that we saw the Obama administration kind of take unilateral action on, and they were able from the administrative state to impose mandates and rules and these sorts of things. Uh, so we've been very anxious to get relief from that from the administration. Or is it three weeks ago or so? The president signed an executive order, basically stating uh, the general principles of which the administration holds with respect to religious liberty that they want to defend um, religious liberty in a robust way. But we have yet to see kind of real action taken on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I'm still very hopeful that we will get that out of the agencies. I admit that it's been frustrating that it's taken this long and that we haven't had the practical, specific relief that we've been looking for yet. But we're still just, whatever, four months in, into the administration, five, four months, yes, four or five months into the administration. Uh, but my expectation is here in the next few weeks that from various agencies we will see some specific relief. Of course, there's the HHS mandate, the famous situation with the Little Sisters of the Poor and Catholic University and a host of institutions mm-hmm. with respect to mandating um, contraception, some of which are abortifacients. So we would expect relief from that uh, with a broader religious exemption. Uh, there's still going to be a struggle with respect to the health care bill that comes out of Congress to get good conscience protections in that. Uh, as Melissa noted, there are not 60 votes in the Senate to get a kind of a piece of legislation through uh, uh, where you can have good policy on it. So. There are some maneuvers, legislative maneuvers, that we're trying to do, but it's complicated, very limited. Uh, so I'm not sure legislatively what, what we're going to be able to get. So I would expect in the near term most of our protections will come from the administration. 
uh, with the hope that we can slowly kind of build a rebuild a consensus in defense of religious liberty. Now, admittedly, the landscape does not look very good right now. We have the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which uh, your listeners may be familiar with, RIFRA, mm-hmm. which when it was first passed, was passed almost unanimously in both the House and the Senate. Uh, now there is not consensus on this because it's been drawn into, or it's been, been characterized in a way that is seen as providing, as they say, the license to discriminate, which is not what it does at all. But we had a bill two years ago, I think it was, in the Senate that, that they took a vote uh, on RIFRA for health care legislation. And uh, I th- I th- I'm pretty sure, um, including Manchin, I think all Democrats voted for that. I looked that up the other day, and I'm pretty sure, but I could be wrong, maybe Manchin had voted against that, uh, as well as a couple of Republicans. And that's just a f- very different place than where Congress was 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we've seen similar things in the states. Um, so it's going to be hard to um, advance the ball. Right now we're very much in a defensive mode. Uh, there are plenty of examples of, of where religious liberty is being threatened. I think one of the, um, you know, one clear example is what we've already seen with adoption and foster care services. That's not so much a federal issue, but it's a state issue. But you have in Boston... Washington, D.C., the entire state of Illinois and mm-hmm. San Francisco, adoption service providers like Catholic Charities that do not place in same-sex households can no longer be licensed. So they are out of that service in those areas. Mm-hmm. And what's tragic about that is not so much that the Catholic Church isn't able to place children, it's that moms, dads, and children who are looking for good homes, looking for good choices... Those choices don't exist anymore, mm-hmm. and this is a, and so we have legislation, the Child Welfare Provider Inclusion Act, which would provide space for everybody. If an adoption service provider wants to place in same-sex households, they're free to do that. Mm-hmm. But if a provider doesn't want to do that because of their understanding of the human person and the good of the child and whatnot, their moral beliefs, they have the freedom not not to do that. Mm-hmm. So it's very inclusive. But we're not able to get that through Congress because it's framed as being. Um, bigoted and discriminating against folks. And and that's just, you know, unfortunately where the conversation has gone. I don't think that's necessarily where the culture is, but that's where the politics is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, I hope as, I mean, one of the good things that can come out of this desperate situation, in this example and other examples, is that the issue is being um, kind of looked at again, you know, the, the people becoming aware of the situation. And so I'm hoping that whereas a few years ago politicians were able to kind of take aggressive action against faith communities and it kind of flew under the radar, my hope is that the issue has been surfaced to the point where it's not going to be as easy for this sort of uh, bigotry to be shown towards faith, people of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whether or not we can actually create the space again, I mean, this, this, is, this is really, really important work. Uh, again, not for the church, but for the people it serves. Uh, we serve not because people are, that we serve are Catholic, but it's because we're Catholic. Mm-hmm. And we serve whether they're Catholic or not, but we also have to serve according to our beliefs. Mm-hmm. And our beliefs, I think, have served the common good well, but slowly we're being more and more marginalized. Uh, so this is an important fight. It's a real fight. It's a fight that happens on many levels, certainly politically, uh, but also spiritually. So I think it's important as you, to kind of harken back to what you
alluded to earlier, for the faith community, Catholic community, to be taking this to prayer on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, we will uh, close, and I thank you so much for uh, joining me, for taking the trip down the hall to come <laughs> chat with us for a little bit. Um, and, so, and thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast from our offices in Washington, D.C. This is Aaron Matthew Weldon. God bless.